Hey, we're glad you're here this morning. Uh, you got, you got, Stephen was real excited. He was off at a, I think a training time for Young Life. If you don't know, part of Stephen's job is actually to be an outreach in our community. One of the best outreaches he can be a part of is Young Life and uh, leading music and connecting the kids to Young Life. So we're excited. So be praying for that. Uh, Young Life plays a great role in our community. We've got some 900 kids over at the high school. 900 kids that we have the opportunity to really share who Christ is. 900 kids that are our responsibility. They may not be your kids, but these are, are kids that we need to be the ones who really reflect who Christ is and have a passion and really be praying for that, that school. As we talk about every time you drive by a school, what are you supposed to do? Pray for them. Every time you go by the fire department, police department, whatever it is, if you don't remember to pray, if you're kind of spontaneous like me, just pray as you drive by. That's your prayer list. Whatever you see, right, you just, you just kind of lift them. So we want to be lifting up our high school as they kick off this year and get into Young Life and all that good stuff. Hey, just quickly, a couple things. After the second service today, we have our essentials class. If you're interested in that, that's today. It's today. So maybe you had that on your calendar. You can still come. If you haven't signed up, you want to find out more about the church, we'll talk about that today at 1215. You got that, 1215. And then also, let me just brag on the church. Last week, we're in Idaho Springs. I didn't have the pictures, but here are the pictures. This is a good-looking group right there. I'm in there someplace. But anyways, we were up in Idaho Springs. We did a number of service projects, helping out in the community, helped a number of veterans clean up their homes, did some painting projects, cleaning projects, works projects. Some of you know our passion is to see a church planted in Idaho Springs. If you live on that corridor, if you're up I-70, if you're on Floyd Hill, if you're in Idaho Springs, Georgetown, wherever you are, our hope is one day, and hopefully within the next year, we'll have a church planted up there. And some of you may find this vision, this desire to go that direction. If you do, we release you with all the joy of the Lord. Because our desire is not just to grow a big church, but to see the kingdom of God expand. And that means sometimes... We serve and we sacrifice so that the kingdom can touch other lives. And so be praying about that as well. It was a great time, exciting time to uh, get out there and serve together. And that's kind of my commercial. That's the end. But hey, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, there's some Bibles. I think we're on page like 980 from last week. Philippians chapter 2. And I confessed last week that I'm nervous and I'm still nervous. If there are mountain peaks in the Bible, this is one of them. If there are mountaintops, Romans chapter 8 is probably one of them, Isaiah 53, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 is a majestic work of art. It's in fact poetry. Now as we jump into this, it may not sound like poetry, but it should be kind of set apart in your Bible as poetry because what Paul is doing is not just simply writing, uh, writing about Jesus, he's taking this ancient hymn. A hymn that was in the church, at work in the church, and he's quoting it because it was something that the church would know. You know, in our culture today, we've got reality television. I love Deadliest Cats, one of my favorite shows. I think I've watched all 13, 14 seasons. I'm confessing this morning. Uh, and you get into the lives of people when you watch that kind of show. I know it's edited, and some of that's not, not as, as clear as it would be. But you, you get into the lives of people. We've got social media where everyone's sharing their inmost thoughts and Opinions. We all love that. Well, Philippians chapter 2 is the inmost thoughts of Jesus. It, it describes not just who he is and what he's done. It describes how he thinks. 
how he saw himself, how he viewed his life, how he viewed the work that he was called to do. In Philippians 2, we're not just getting an idea of who Jesus is. We're truly getting into the mind of Christ, and that mind is supposed to change our mind. But the focus of this passage is not knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's knowledge that's supposed to come in in such a way that we start to see the world through the lens that Jesus was God, Jesus became man, and Jesus became a servant. See, if Jesus is God, and Jesus became man, and Jesus lived as a servant, how should that change the way I see the world, the way that I see my job, my career, the way that I see my spouse, my life, my future, my finances? How should it change the way that we see things? See, I have to confess that often my mind sees things in the wrong way. I can't tell you how often I'm wrong, but it's often. Often I'll see people in a certain way. I'll see circumstances in a certain light. And what he's promising us in this passage is we can, in a sense, already have and download the mind of Christ to see things as God sees them, but to live life as Christ lived it. So let's jump in. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1. We looked at 1 through 4 to 5 last week, but we're going to jump in and look at verses 1 through 11. The word of the Lord. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full in accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you look not to his own interests, but also the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me ask for God's help. Father, confess there's a, there's a weightiness and a majesty as we come to these words. Not words that are just written in the past, words that are alive, living, and active. Father, words that if they, they grasp hold of our mind, if they penetrate the heart through the power of the Spirit, can cause us in this short time we have today to have a complete shift in perspective. Father, first of all, to see you for who you are, to see the path that Jesus took. He didn't climb up to become great, but he descended into greatness. He descended into humility. He who was in the very nature of God did not consider that equality, Father, to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And for our sake, Lord Jesus, you became a servant. Help us to see, Father, if Jesus was willing to serve us in our state, how that mind and attitude could, could give us a new vision for life. Teach us through this, Father, we ask the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So real simple, Jesus is God, Jesus became man, and then Jesus lived the life of a servant. There's a lot of directions we can go here, but the hope is, as we walk through this, we'll start to ask the question, what would it look like to really see life as if all of these realities are true? So first of all, Jesus became God. So let's jump into the text in verse 6. And there's a word in this passage, you're going to see it a couple times, it's the word form. And in the Greek, it's the word morphe. Now, we're going to talk about that a couple times, but in verse 6, it says that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, again, in the Greek, it's this word morphe, and it means simply form. The challenge with the word form is you think of a physical form, not simply the nature of. See, what this is describing is not that Jesus was simply in the physical form of God or in the shape of God, but that he was in the very essence of God. That this table is a table because it's, it's a table, and it's in the form of a table, but its essence, its nature is that it's a table. The same thing is true with Jesus. When it's saying he's in the form of God, it didn't mean that suddenly he became God, but he has always been in the form, in the essence in the nature of God. See, back in the creed time, they used this, uh, this word, homoousios. Great word. Take that home with you. Homo, meaning same. Ousios, meaning substance. Jesus is of the same substance as God. He is very nature God. That's how the NIV captures it, that he is, he is God of God. He is a very nature God. That he didn't come simply as a human being, that God's presence fell on like the prophets, but rather Jesus is from all eternity the very creator, God, and sustainer of all things. You know, what Paul says in Philippians 2 really is an incredibly strong statement. Now, often when I have conversations with people, they'll say things to me like, you know, why didn't Jesus just say, hey, I'm God? Now, there are places where I think he does say that, but he doesn't say the words, hey, I'm God. Now, I think the reason he doesn't is there is there's more of a challenge in understanding what that phrase means than what this text means. Because, see, if I say, hey, I am God, well, that can mean a lot of things to you. That can mean a lot of, you interpret a lot into what that statement is. But when he says, I am in the very form of God, and the God is the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, Yahweh, he's describing, I am in the very character and in the very nature God. He's describing in this statement, uh, a broad proclamation and claim that he who has existed from all times now has become one of us, that Jesus is in very essence God of God. Now here's the objection that often we hear from this. The objection is that sometimes, and maybe you've heard this claim, well, they'll say things like, well, that's not really what Jesus thought of himself. Because, see, the book of Philippians was written probably 20 years from the time uh, that Jesus died and rose again. So there are many, and maybe you've heard that on a documentary, they'll say, well, that's not what Jesus thought of himself. It, instead, it's what the church imposed on him. Now, here's the challenge with that. The book of Philippians was written within 20 years of the time of Jesus, which that's, that's a pretty, in terms of history, a very close uh, connection to the life of Christ. But realize what he's quoting in verse 2 is, Maybe something Paul has written, but it's something that predates this letter, meaning that it's one of the earliest reflections of who Jesus is, along with 1 Corinthians 15, 
which describes what Jesus has done, Philippians chapter 2, gives us a picture of his nature and his character. And so going early back into the history of the church, from the very beginning of the church, the church believed that Jesus was in very nature God. That's vital. I mean, there wasn't a period of time in which there was a gap where they didn't understand who Jesus was. See, later in church history, what we did is we started writing creeds. The reason we wrote creeds was not to make up what we believe, but rather to combat errors in the church. Because when errors would rise up, we'd say, hey, we need some clarification around this point. We need to make sure we understand what we believe about God. And so over time in history, as theology was kind of written out and unpacked, what would happen is they would say things according to the errors they were addressing. But early on, from the very beginning in Philippians chapter 2, we see that Jesus is in very nature God from the beginning of the church. It echoes his claims, and it echoes the claims that Paul himself is making. Now, here's the important thing. How does that change us? Now, how should that really impact the way that we think? And here's my first thought, and I'll apply it to myself. Jason, you have no excuse. You have no excuse when you think your life cannot change. You have no excuse when you think there are things in front of you, obstacles, temptations, that you cannot overcome. Because if you go back to verse 1, he says, if we have any encouragement in Christ. Some translations say, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. Then when you jump down in verse 13, Paul says there in verse 13, for it is God, listen to this language, who works in you. Do you notice that? The life that you're living, and like 1 Corinthians uh, or uh, Galatians chapter 2, 20, uh, verse 20 says, you know, I'm crucified with Christ, the life I live I now live through faith in the Son of God that loved me and gave himself for me. And he says here, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God dwells within us in the nature of Jesus. What limitations am I putting on myself? What excuses do we have? I mean, how often do you say to yourself, you know, I won't change, it won't change, I can't change. If you truly have the mind of Christ, then Jesus is fully God of God, and that God dwells within you. What limitations do we really have? Mary said, you know, in faith, nothing is impossible for God. And it's God, notice, is verse 13, working and willing in you. God is the one that changes us. God is the one that transforms us. God is the one that moves out through us. It's not like me picking up all my energy and pushing really hard and God kind of coming alongside to help me. No, the story of the gospel is that God is dwelling in you. He's changing you. Now, we have to have an attitude of submission before him. But the reality is we have no excuse. I have no excuse. What limiting thoughts, limiting ideas, lies have you allowed to descend into your heart that do not match up? that do not match up with the life that God has given us. We have no excuse. If he's truly nature God and he dwells within us, we have no excuse. Because listen to the words of Matthew 11, 28. It says, come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. That is God speaking to us. That is the essence of the Christian life, is simply to be with God. 
Now, how do we know who he is? That's the purpose of Jesus. You see in Jesus, and in this passage, you see the heart of God for us. You see his nature. You see his character. Though he was glorious, he descended. I mean, even to take the words humility and God and put them in the same sentence, it, it creates a little contradiction in us. But God humbled himself and served us. There is no excuse. But, you know, beyond that, it's a sobering thought that Jesus is God. When you read the stories in the New Testament, there's no one that really just liked Jesus. You know, there's no one that said, you know, he's a neat guy. He's, he's kind of interesting. He's... No, they either, on the one hand, they rejected him, violently rejected him. Once they figured out what he was claiming, I think before they understood his claims, they may have had an interest in him, but once they understood that he himself was claiming to be God, there was a violent reaction in many. And some of his own disciples walked away from him and said, this stuff is too hard to believe. Many were violent. Others were afraid, afraid of the implications of, of who he was. The one thing that they were not is just simply interested. And yet Americans, the typical American, likes Jesus. That we're okay, we're moderates about who he is. The claims of Jesus do not allow us to walk the fence of moderation. Should I obey? Should I not obey? Should I follow him? Should I not follow him? No. When you realize the claims of who Jesus is in your mind, your mind starts to put those claims in context of your own life, the call of the Christian life is really to follow. Jesus said to find life, you've got to, you've got to lose it. But if you lose life for me and for the gospel, you're going to find it. Do you see him in very nature God? Do we tremble before that truth? That's the first claim that he's making. But beyond that, he says, second, he also became a man. So verses 6 and 7, let's pick it up again. In verse 6, it says, who though he was in the form, and that's that word morphe of God. And here's an important word. He didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. I think what he's saying is he didn't use his divinity as a pedestal to stand on. He didn't use it to benefit himself. He didn't use it in a way that made life easier for him. He didn't hold on to it. It's not that he lost his divinity, but he didn't use it in a way that was self-seeking or selfish. Instead, in verse 7, he says he emptied himself. And here's that word again, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of of men. Now, I can't get into it too much, but when you, when you look at these words in the Greek language, which is the original language in which the New Testament was written, it's saying because he's in very nature God, he's always been a nature God, therefore he became man. It's not as if in some way he was God and then he set that stuff aside. He emptied himself of his God nature and he became a human being. Now, the language is really clear. He was God. He became man. That did not cease his divinity, but rather he did not use his divinity as a privilege, as something he could utilize to manipulate life, but rather he was fully and completely man. Now, if you want me to explain that, I can't. And I think it's so, Christians, it's okay. There's, not everything has to be explained. And this is not a cop-out to not say, hey, we shouldn't search and understand. There's a lot of books written on this. And I can't explain it all in this moment. But God is higher than us. His ways are greater than our ways. How does God become man? Listen, I'm not sure. But the reason I believe it is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he rose again, those doctrines, I say, wait a minute. If, he's, if he died on the cross and he rose again, 
then I can, I can allow those truths to kind of settle in my life. But what does it mean to have that mind that he became man? Now, let me take you in a direction that may be just a little bit different. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says this. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells. So in Jesus is the fullness of God. If we don't grasp the identity of Jesus and that God took on human nature, there's going to be a challenge. And I've, I've seen this as I've lived the Christian life and encountered others. Often what we will do, and certainly if we do not understand the gospel and the full nature of Jesus, we will, in a sense, diminish the physical and will elevate the spiritual. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say this. Why should we feed the poor? Why should we fight injustice? Why should we go to the inner city and fight against the systemic brokenness of those places? Doesn't it just matter that people give their lives to Christ? Shouldn't we just be converting souls? See, if you don't understand the gospel that Jesus, God, became human, you're going to elevate the spiritual, you're going to de-escalate, you're going to turn down the physical. Because in some ways, you're going to see the physical and the spiritual as separate. But see, that can't be true. That's not true. See, when Jesus came, he didn't come to get us into a new location called heaven. Jesus came to turn back everything that sin had destroyed. One of the things that sin has destroyed is separated the soul and the body. We're bifurcated. We're not whole. We're not in, there's not integrity within us. But in Jesus, you see a fully functioning human being. When he rose from the dead, he rose with a body. It was the same body he had before. It wasn't somehow he got this new body, right? This completely different body. It was a transform. There was discontinuity in that his body was now transformed, but it was the same physical body because that's our future. When we are in heaven, we are on earth. I know this may shock you a little bit. You just need to read into it. It's true. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. You know, God is not afraid of the physical. Think of how the Bible begins. His hands are in the dirt. Right? Our God is not disconnected from creation. He's not looking down and somehow in, in deism just kind of operating and let the world going. No, he is intimately involved. His hands are in the dirt and out of his breath. We are created out of the dust of the earth. And then at the end, you see God restoring all things and bringing creation back to its natural place. Not a heaven and an earth that blows up. This isn't the Death Star. I know the earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. It's not exactly true. The elements of the world, the broken elements of the world, the earth is not going to dissolve. The sun's not going to disappear. It's going to be restored. In the same way right now, God has restored you spiritually. And God and creation is groaning. One day all things will be made new. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And all of that, all the crying and mourning will fade away. For God has made all things new. Do you see that? Do you see that? We have to have a greater vision of redemption than just us. Though we are a crown of creation, creating the image of God Jesus came and he's restoring all things, which means feeding the poor matters. Fighting injustice matters because in the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God comes, those inequities, they fail, they fall. It doesn't mean that somehow we diminish the conversion of souls. Certainly we want to see lives in the kingdom of God, but do not separate the two. Do you see that? 
When you separate the two, it diminishes who Jesus was and what God has accomplished and where history and creation is going to head. When that mind comes in us, we see a holistic view of life. We see a life, we see a life that is full, but beyond that second, if he is truly human, then he understands you. One of the mysteries of the Christian God is that he truly does understand us. We don't have a high priest, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We don't have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way that I am, and yet he was without sin. Have you ever felt abandoned? Your God understands. You ever felt rejected? You ever have a prayer rejected from God? God, this is a crucial moment. I need to hear your voice. I'm not hearing anything. I don't know where you are. I'm sweating drops of blood. Have you ever had a prayer request that you thought had to happen and nothing happened? He's been there. He was experienced everything that we have. Truly, our God is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And see, what he does is he invites us into himself. You know, God didn't create you so that he could know what relationships are like. If Jesus is in very nature God, he became a human being in the vision of the Trinity. God has been in himself loving and exchanging love from eternity past. And all he does is he invites us into himself to share his love, which means he understands us, he knows us, and he invites us into himself. He is God, he became man, but listen, he didn't just become any ordinary man. Or didn't, actually, he didn't become a powerful man. I could change that around. He didn't become a CEO, right? He didn't become a king. He didn't become some great prophet that gathered millions of people. No, he became, as Scripture says, he became a kind of man. He became a servant. So jump back down in verse 7. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found, and again, here's this language, in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here's the shift. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped. I do that every day. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Jesus, who was in very nature God, he didn't utilize, he didn't chase after, he didn't hold on to that divinity in the sense of using that to his advantage. I was not created in the likeness of God. I'm not equal unto God, yet I'm constantly, my sin problem is I'm constantly trying to be God. Do you you hear that story? Jesus was God. He didn't didn't hold on to that. He humbled himself. We Think of our story. Our story is the opposite. We're trying to fight to make ourselves great. We're trying to be like God. How do I, how am I like God? Well, I sometimes tell God No. God, I know you want me to forgive. I know you want me to sacrifice. I know you want me to be humble, but it's not going to serve me right now. And it's really hard. What am I saying? I'm saying equality with God is something I can grasp. Often we know God's commands. We know his desires. We know his wants for our life, and we reject them thinking we know better. What's worry? I mean, when we worry, we have a preferred future, don't we? You've got a, a narrative, a vision of the future, what you want to see happen. When you worry, you're saying, God, you're not getting it right. <laughs> God, God uh, what's happening right now is not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, a little clarification on that. It's supposed to be better than this. 
And, and the future that's supposed to be coming is supposed to be better than this. And so God kind of get on board. We're grasping on. We're saying, in a sense, God, I'm, I'm greater than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm wiser than you. Jesus, in equality with God, didn't hold on to that, and yet we hold on to it all the time. Don't we? We fight for it. What did he do? He became a servant, right? Humbled himself, and not just any servant, but obedient to death, death on a cross. And what happened? God exalted him. He found his identity in service. He found glory in diminishing himself. We often try to find glory by going up, don't we? Hey, look at the stuff I have. Look at what I've accomplished. Even think of salvation. What's the narrative of salvation? The narrative of salvation, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. I mean, there's nothing I can do. See, the story of salvation is not if I try really hard and I do enough, God may accept me, he may love me, he may adopt me. No, the story of salvation is the story of diminishing. That the way up is really the way down. And the way down is to admit God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The humble says, God, right now I have no righteousness of my own. Any righteousness, and righteousness just means reasons for you to accept me. And any reasons I have to accept me from the past that I try to build up, these, these straw huts that I'm trying to present to you as some display of my own glory, Father, they're nothing. They're worthless. They're empty. I need a Savior. You know, Jesus was in the very form of God, and yet he had no beauty. <laughs> Do you know this? No majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And yet surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus descended into greatness. So when he said to his disciples, hey, do you want to sit my right and left? You know what the pathway of greatness is? It's the pathway of a servant. He found his identity by giving it up. You know, that's such the opposite of what we pursue. Even recently they redid Aladdin, and i got to tell you, it was kind of terrible. Um, the Lion King, that was amazing. Did you, did you see that yet? I was watching that thinking, that is, that's technology right there. Aladdin, Will Smith could have done a lot better. I mean, I'm telling you, that was a horrible movie. But you think about, it, isn't that our mentality, Aladdin, right? You rub the lamp, you always, get, you always ask for more wishes. It's good that he clarified that because I would always go, I want more wishes. But what did he say? How am I going to become great? What, what's, what's Aladdin's, what's our philosophy? Hey, let's get on top of a big elephant, right, with peacocks and, and strong men and sounds and lights and all of this. This is what's going to show you my greatness. I've got to have greatness surround me. I've got to have a name. I've got to have power. I've got to have authority. That's the exact opposite. You know what? Jesus is more like Frodo than Aladdin. <clears throat> I'm just trying to help you guys out with a couple narratives here. <laughs> this is for you, right? He's like, what's Frodo? You think of the story. For Everybody wants the ring. If you haven't seen it, come on, watch it, pick it up so you guys can get on this, this illustration. But everybody wants the ring. Why? They want to be Aladdin. If I'm Aladdin, the world's going to be right. Even if they have the purest intentions, even if they have the noblest of hearts, once the ring of power overtakes them and they think the way up is the way up, it destroys. It crushes. What does Frodo do? He has to die, didn't he, in a sense. 
He had to to lose himself. But who is the greatest? At the end of the story, you know who the greatest is. It's even the elves are kind of saying, it's Frodo. It's all about Frodo. Why? Because that's what Tolkien is doing is he's describing the, the picture of Jesus. That Jesus took the greatest path. He humbled himself. He served us in our brokenness and our weakness. If that mind was in you that this is the true path to greatness, how would that change the way you interact with people? It would, it, it would cause love your enemies to make sense. <laughs> I mean, so often it's like, that didn't, pray for those who persecute you. Do not return cursing with, with cursing, overcome evil with good. When the story of Jesus and who he was and how he redeemed us, if that comes into your mind, all of scripture starts to make sense. Because the kingdom of God is upside down from this world. The whole story of the Beatitudes is to show us the upside down nature. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those uh, who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is that? It's, it's putting ourselves, it's not saying that those conditions are good. It's saying, but when I'm in those conditions, what is good becomes more real. Because see, if God is at the center of your life, when you mourn, you just get more God. When you're poor in spirit, you know your condition and you're not grabbing onto things in life and trying to find the solution by controlling God or manipulating God, but you just say, God, I want you to be God. That's where God comes in and he exalts us. We don't exalt ourselves, but rather the greatest exaltation is to know that we are in God. And when he returns and our knees bow, our knees will bow in joy. Our knees will bow in celebration. Our knees will bow because we know we are one with the creator of the world because of what Jesus Christ has done. You know, I have to admit one thing, and then I'll close. You know, when I came to Evergreen, I just wanted to survive. <laughs> Can I confess that? I just, you know, two years ago, I just wanted to survive. You know, I came to the church. There were some challenges. I won't get into the challenges, but there were some challenges, and I just thought, God, you know, I can't handle it. I just want to survive. And looking at this, I confess, that's a really small view. We should never just want to survive. Because the challenges we face, if the fullness of God gets into you, those challenges compared to who he is and what he wants to accomplish, when we surrender and say, God, I want you to do what you want to do. And I want to surrender myself to what you want to accomplish because he's already at work within you. You don't remember 13? He's already at work within you. He's already at work around you. It's just that you're not surrendered to what he's doing. And you've got to download some of his mind to see things the way that he sees them. Hey, if every day we just kind of got that mindset and then every, every afternoon we forgot it and then got it back, that's the Christian life. What he's telling us is not just who God is and what he's done, which is majestic, but how that should start to change the way that we see the world. Are you allowing that shift to take place? And part of that, listen, it doesn't happen just immediately. Sometimes it, it does in ways, but it's really by surrendering to the Spirit and confessing and saying, Father, forgive me. You know, I want to see myself. I, I see myself at the middle. I, I want to manipulate life. I want to control life. I want power, approval, comfort, control. I want that stuff. And yet, Father, more than I want that, I want you. That Jesus did these things so that we could be with him. Let's celebrate that, that we are with God. And in that, allow him to change our vision for life. Where is it that you're struggling? Would you just today, and maybe you need to come celebrate communion. This is second Sunday that we have communion every single Sunday. We're not going to give it to you. You've got to come up and get it, okay? So it's up front. It's in the back. 
But maybe you just need to come forward and confess to him and say, Father, I'm going to lay this down. Would you allow your attitude and your mind to, to transform me, to change my thought process? I want to surrender it to you. I don't know where you are today, but I want you to know these tables are open. There's also going to be some folks that are going to stand up in these areas. And if you need to be prayed for, uh, that's why they're here. But this is a time to seek his face. Let me pray for us and ask the spirit of God to apply this truth to our heart. Father, there's a lot here. <laughs> and I confess, I probably went a lot of different directions. But Father, in your wisdom and your infinite power, would you, as the Holy Spirit's come, he's come to exalt Jesus, to show us who Jesus is. And Father, though we may know you, we don't often see you for who you are. And if I could confess, Father, often we, we use you to get things for ourselves. Whether that's even a purpose for my life, I use you so that I might feel significant instead of just being with you and just in the fullness of your presence saying, Father, what should I be asking for? What, what is it that I think is too great that your power cannot overcome? What lies, what fear has limited me in seeing my identity as one in Christ. And Father, would you, in this time, just allow us, allow us the mind of Christ, which is already ours, but allow it to penetrate those areas, our strongholds, our areas we're protecting. Would you allow it through the grace and the mercy of God, would you allow it to break down those strongholds and open us up to see you for who you are. And then, Father, to follow that pattern with others. Thank you, Father, for this truth. In Jesus' name.